Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn, healthcare practice group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I'm Regina Alexander, Director of Independent Review Organization Services. I'm joined for this episode by Barry Dunn, Director of Clinical Documentation Improvement and Professional Services Coding Compliance Expert, Cheryl Crush. In this episode, we are taking a look back at the evaluation and management documentation and coding guidance changes that took effect January 1st, 2021. How providers adapted to the guidance, lessons learned, as well as tips for providers to leverage the changes into 2022 and beyond. Before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging Barry Dunn for independent review organization, revenue integrity, government program compliance, and credentialing support services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for CMS, the HHS OCR, the HHS OIG, the DOJ, or any other government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. Cheryl, thanks for taking the time to join my podcast. Before we dive too deeply into one of your favorite topics, E&M documentation and coding guidelines, can you share a bit about your background, the types of client engagements you're involved with, and whatever else you'd like to share today? Sure, and thank you, Regina, for asking me to participate in your podcast today. I've been a nurse for 40 years now, and I've practiced in the states of Maine and Connecticut, and in many settings, such as the acute care setting, SNFs, private physician practices, HMOs, and the Connecticut State Medical Society, IPA. I also hold many certifications pertaining to coding, auditing, and clinical documentation improvement. I joined Vantage Point about 15 years ago and then Barry Dunn a little over a year ago. In the consulting world, I work on many different client engagements. Unfortunately, a high percentage are reactive reviews, meaning that the physician, group, or facility is already at risk for a high payback to a payer such as the state Medicaid program, Medicare, and in some cases, third-party payers such as Anthem or United, to name a few. Attorneys often reach out to us with clients who have been audited by one of these payers with an unfavorable outcome. For example, the state will find overpayments in the amount of $8,000, but the extrapolation amount sometimes can come out to $1 million. The auditing team at Barry Dunn will try to poke holes in the audit findings to lower the amount of the payback. I work closely with Regina, our Director of Independent Review Organization Services for clients who are under a corporate integrity agreement with the OIG. Of course, I do have clients who reach out on a proactive basis to review their documentation and coding 
to ensure that both CPT and ICD-10 coding is accurate and that documentation supports the codes that are billed. We then provide education to help them avoid an audit or a corporate integrity agreement. So Cheryl, as long as I've known you, whether it's advising clients on setting up uh, EHR templates uh, to facilitate physician mobility to capture the required elements, or educating providers on best practices for documenting the required elements like HPI and medical decision-making, just to provide a few examples from a typical ENM note, you've been the go-to resource for me and others in our firm for everything and anything regarding revenue integrity and ENM services. And I think the, your background that you shared really highlights that. Although my professional focus has been primarily hospital facility coding and billing, I do understand evaluation and management coding is the use of CPT codes from the range of 99202 to 99499 and also represents professional services provided by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional. The code sets used to bill for EM services are organized into various categories and levels. And generally, the more complex the visit, the higher the level of the code the provider may bill within the appropriate category. I think that's about the extent of what I understand, so I'm glad we're having this discussion. Um, what, what I also know is that the ENM guidelines were developed by CMS in conjunction with the AMA in two different versions, the first in 1995 and an additional in 1997. So Cheryl, anyone who has had a routine office visit with a primary care or specialty physician or has been treated in the emergency room or even had a physician um, or NPP manage their care as an inpatient has had what we call an ENM encounter. Can you provide a brief overview of the elements a physician or non-physician practitioner would typically document in the medical record to support reimbursement for providing that ENM service? Certainly. So prior to 1997, there have been no changes to the guidelines. So that's 24 years until 2021. The 2021 guidelines um, include a very small subset of the ENM codes, specifically new and established patient services in the office or outpatient setting, which included your 99202 through 99205, which are your new patient codes and the established patient codes 99212 through 99215. The documentation guidelines for all other ENM services were not impacted by the 2021 changes such, such as observation and inpatient services to name a few. These services continue to require documentation following the 1995 or 1997 guidelines. So everyone needs to be careful if you're still providing both services that you're documenting to the appropriate guidelines. Prior to the 2021 changes, ENM services required a chief complaint, history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. Depending on the ENM service you are providing would determine if documentation is needed for all key, three key components or two. From there, it comes down to how complex the documentation is for each of the key components of history, physical exam, and medical decision-making. 
ENM levels can also be billed based on the amount of face-to-face -face time spent with the patient, with the caveat that more than 50% of the total time spent was providing counseling to the patient. Now that's, that's not based on the 1995-97 guidelines. It sounds like the 2021 ENM guidance changes are not applicable at all to inpatient professional services documentation and in that environment, 1995 and 1997 guidance still rules the roost. But based on your experience auditing claims and providing CDI education, which elements of the ENM documentation guidelines do you think are the most commonly misunderstood? Which do you think are still the most burdensome to the provider? So I often see practitioners documenting elements that are not associated with the problem or complaints that the patient presents with because they felt the element was needed to build the level of the service. For example, documenting family history for an established 98-year-old patient with no other complaints except cold symptoms. In this case, because the patient is established, documentation could be met based on the level of exam and medical decision-making. It is my feeling that after reviewing many medical notes over the years, that documentation required for the history portion of an ENM, which includes history of present illness, review of systems, and past family social history, is most misunderstood and burdensome at the same time. For example, the review of system was meant to address any systems that may be associated with the chief complaint but we often find providers documenting all 14 systems under the review of systems. Well, Cheryl, 14 systems available to document. So it sounds like the provider needs to be thoughtful about which systems are pertinent to the chief complaint. And by doing so, the provider could actually avoid expending time on documenting elements that actually aren't related to the patient's presenting problem. So that now brings us to the long anticipated changes to the ENM documentation guidance that went into effect January 1st, 2021. So according to CMS, the 2021 revisions to the ENM office visit CPT codes 99201 through 99215 code descriptors and documentation standards was intended to directly address the problem of administrative burden for physicians in nearly every specialty. I believe they called it patients over paperwork. The changes retained five levels of coding for established patients, reduced the number of levels to four for office and outpatient E&M visits for new patients, as well as revised the code definitions. The guidance also revised the times and medical decision-making process for all of the codes and also require performance of history and exam only as medically appropriate, allowing clinicians to choose the ENM visit level based on either medical decision-making or time. So Cheryl, the 2021 documentation guideline changes certainly sound like a big deal in comparison to the 1995 and 1997 documentation guidelines providers had been using in the outpatient setting. Now that we are past the first year anniversary of the changes, based on your observations auditing Barry Dunn client documentation, 
which E&M guideline modification do you think has been the most significant and which has been the most misunderstood? So let's put aside the time for now, the, the time factor. So I believe the requirement for history and physical exam is the most significant change for 2021. Instead of documenting a certain number of bullets under history and exam portion, the provider now determines based on his or her medical expertise, the most important and pertinent information for the patient being seen. I used to joke around with providers all the time saying, when I audit, I'm a bean counter because I'm counting how many bullets you're hitting in your documentation. So that'll be nice that you don't have to deal with that anymore. The documentation of these two areas is no longer used to determine the level of service. It still has to be there, but it's not used to determine what level you're, you're using. This is where the confusion first started. Providers initially believed that his, no history or exam was required to be documented at all. This is not true. A pertinent history and exam must be documented under the 2021 guidelines. However, the level of history and exam is not used to calculate the level of service, which is now calculated based on medical decision-making and time. So speaking of time, this is another area where the new documentation guidelines has changed significantly. First, the time defined in the code descriptors is used to select the appropriate level and is now based on time spans versus a certain designated amount of time. Counseling that dominates the amount of time spent with the patient was removed in the 2021 guidelines. Time now is based on the amount of total time on the date of the encounter. It includes both the face-to-face -face and, this is the new part, non-face-to-face -face time, personally spent by the physician or other qualified healthcare professional. Many times I've heard physicians state that they have patients that come to them with copious amounts of medical records from previous practitioners and wanted to know if the time spent reviewing these records could be included in the time spent. So the answer to that question under the 1995 and 1997 guidelines was no. But now under the 2021 guidelines, you can include this time if it is spent on the day of the encounter. If the time spent was the day before or the day after or any other day except the encounter date, it would not count. Other activities performed that can be included in the time spent may include time obtaining a history, performing a medical exam, ordering medication, reviewing labs or radiology reports, and documenting in the clinical record, to name a few. There is now a lot more flexibility when billing based on time. So Cheryl, it sounds like the value of a provider's time to review previous records or documentation from other care providers is actually recognized under the 2021 changes. And as long as it's on the same date of service as the patient counter, and that time spent is explicitly recorded in the ENM note, the provider gets credit for that. That sounds like a great change. Over the years, 
I have to say, in response to clients asking about special considerations for documenting evaluation and management services for their particular specialty, I've overheard you state that an E&M is an E&M as an E&M. Could you elaborate on what you have historically meant by that? And did the 2021 changes positively impact certain specialties differently than others? Sure. I actually like saying an E&M is an E&M is an E&M. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I guess I've said that a lot over the years. Um, but if you look at the documentation requirements at a high level, it really doesn't matter if you're a neurologist, an internist, an orthopedist, a pediatrician, and so on. The documentation requirements are not different for different specialties. They remain the same for all specialties. If a low medical decision-making is required to bill a level three ENM, it is required no matter the specialty of the provider providing the service. Having said that, the type of documentation may be different. You wouldn't expect an otolaryngologist to perform the same exam or prescribe the same medication as an orthopedist. This is what I mean when I say, here it goes again, an E&M is an E&M <laughs> is an E&M. I will say that auditors need to be familiar with the specialty in as far as specific procedures done by that specialty and terminology used. I believe the changes that took place with the 2021 guidelines will still affect all specialties equally who bill those services. If you don't bill those services, then it's gonna have no impact on you. The documentation requirements for medical decision-making overall are the same no matter the specialty. I have to admit, Cheryl, I do just love saying an E&M is an E&M is an E&M, but the overall point you make is very important for physicians and NPPs to hear so they avoid misinterpretations of how the ENM guidelines apply to them. So now let's pivot to the topic I'm sure our listeners are waiting for. Your tips for leveraging the 2021 ENM guidance changes to reduce documentation related burdens as intended by CMS while also ensuring revenue integrity. And I just want to say we are in 2022, we're a year past it, so it's still not too late, right? Oh, no, it's never too late to get your documentation where it needs to be. So as a clinician, I think the first and most important thing to remember for everyone is that medical documentation must, first of all, be comprehensive enough to ensure the continuity of care for the patients that we're caring for. And secondly, to support the services built. So we, we need to be sure, and, and I can't even tell you how many times this happens, but documentation of chief complaint is either so vague or not there that by the end of the note, as auditors, we still don't know why the patient has gone in to see the practitioner. So be sure to document a specific chief complaint. Change is difficult for all of us. And having said that, auditors are still struggling with the new guidelines as our provider. Provide, providers and support staff should look at the templates they are using in conjunction with their EMRs. 
we can continue to see full documentation of review assistance past family social history when there really isn't any reason to document it or medical necessity to do so. This goes for the physical exam as well. If a patient presents for uncomplicated upper respiratory complaints, what would be the reason for documenting a full range of motion? The 2021 guidelines require a medically necessary history and exam determined by the provider, not a defined number of bullets documented. By documenting unnecessary history and exam elements, the purpose of the 2021 guidelines is defeated and does not reduce documentation. Remember that only those illnesses or symptoms that are addressed on the data service can be counted toward the level of MDM. If you are seeing a patient in follow-up for hypertension, don't count other problems on the problem list, such as GERD, if it was not addressed during the visit. Also, if you are billing based on time, be sure to document the activities that were included in that time. Also, review the time spans under each of the code descriptors. For instance, did you know, so here's a tip right here, that prior to the 2021 guidelines, a 99213 had a time listed in the code descriptor of 15 minutes. If you look at the 2021 code description the de for a definition of 99213, you're going to see the time span is now 20 to 29. So if we're auditing a note and you document that you spent 15 minutes with the patient, we're going to downcode it to a 99212. We always hear from providers and billing staff, well, I got paid for the service. I must have done it correctly. The big question should be, will you get to keep it? As auditors, we want practitioners to be paid for the work that you do and be able to keep the money that you were paid. And the only way to do that is to document the code appropriately. Thanks for sharing your expertise and some really great tips, Cheryl. We could probably chat for hours on this topic, and I think we have in the past. And you also, I know, have some great stories of E&M documentation gone wrong, but we've reached the conclusion of our discussion today. On behalf of myself and Cheryl, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights, Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome listener questions and feedback about the ideas we discussed in this episode, as well as suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes.